Welcome to Commuter Highlights from First Church Belfast. Here we've distilled our normal Sunday service into a call to worship, a prayer, two readings, a sermon and an organ outro for you to listen to on your way to work, out on a walk or wherever. If you feel so inclined, you can support our work by going to firstchurchbelfast.org and clicking on the donate button. We really would appreciate it. Here is this week's Commuter Highlights from First Church Belfast. Good morning to you all and a very warm welcome on this beautiful spring uh, Sunday morning here in First Church Belfast and especially a welcome to anybody who's joining with us online. The spirit of each person is mysterious. The spirit of every child, woman and man is precious. Each spirit, each soul life offers a glimpse beyond the surface towards the depths of the divine. And we are here today and God is here. So let us journey in worship towards that which God calls us to be, drawing all spirits together in his oneness. We join together in prayer. Eternal and ever-loving God, you declare through the words of the prophets and saints, through scripture and tradition, that you love us and you desire for us to know you more. And from the creation of the world, you have chased humanity, constantly pouring your love, life and gifts into all who bear your image. Help us to know that we are valued, that we have gifts, and that you have called us to follow you and to build your kingdom in our world. And we come acknowledging that you are beyond our highest thoughts. You are greater than we could ever imagine. And yet you come to us and offer us a new way of life, a life of forgiveness, of peace and of hope. And we praise you for all that you have done for us, and we wait in hopeful anticipation of all that you will continue to do. For you are unlike anything else we may encounter in our lives. And it is only right that we come with praise and worship. And we are grateful to you for the example you provided in the person of Jesus. For the teachings he gave and the model he gave us to live out. And we are all too aware, though, that we fail to follow the footsteps of Jesus. We struggle to love our neighbours, and at times we do not love you. And so forgive us. Forgive us when our faith is lukewarm. Forgive us when we do not act or speak as you would have us. Send your spirit that we may be transformed into your likeness, and that you may give us the tools to build your kingdom here on earth. Be with us and bless us as we join together in the prayer that Jesus taught when he said, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. 
Good morning. As Simon has been saying, and as we have been singing, this is a beautiful time of the year. Spring is full of hope, abundant life in all its colour and variety. Wildflowers and chirping birds. I would like to read you one of Michael Longley's poems, The Ice Cream Man. I was reminded of it recently by Andrew Cunning in his excellent podcast, The Underneath. The poem has been described as one of the most understated, but one of the most powerful anti-war poems. It's in two parts. The first is uh, a child's list of ice creams. And the second part is a warm, almost defiantly long list of wildflowers. Fiona and I were away recently and we really encountered the beauty of nature. On early morning walks, we came across startled roe deer and watched their white tails bobbing back into the woods. Round the next corner, we heard the tap, tap, tapping of a woodpecker. We tried to identify the cornucopia of wild flowers. Noticing them and naming them meant something. Noticing and naming people gives meaning. The person who is alone, sad, on a waiting list, on the TV news in Ukraine, the person who is out of a job, the bereaved, the widow unable to overcome grief. All are precious in his sight. Michael Longley says that one of his most precious possessions is a thank you letter from the widow of the ice cream man. She thanked the poet for noticing and remembering. The ice cream man. Rum and raisin, vanilla, butterscotch, walnut, peach. You would rhyme off the flavors. That was before they murdered the ice cream man on the Lisburn Road. And you bought carnations to lay outside his shop. I named for you all the wild flowers of the burn I had seen in one day. Thyme, valerian, loosestrife, meadowsweet, twayblade, crowfoot, ling, angelica, herb robert, marjoram, cow parsley, sundew, vetch, mountain avens, wood sage, ragged robin, stitchwort, yarrow, ladies bed straw, bindweed, bog pimpernel. Amen. Our second reading this morning is the traditional reading from the lectionary for this year C. And it comes from John's Gospel, uh, chapter 10, reading verses 22 to 29. At that time, the festival of the dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple 
in the portico of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I have told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name testify to me. But you do not believe because you do not belong to my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. What my Father has given me is greater than all else and no one can snatch it out of the Father's hand. Amen. The image of Jesus as the Good Shepherd reminds many of that sort of kitsch religious art that still hangs on many's a church wall across the globe. It's the sort of Sunday school image of Jesus. Blonde hair and blue eyes, complete with flowing robes, cuddling a tiny lamb while the other sheep lie peacefully at his feet. And the scene is idyllic and the theology is sanitized and sentimentalized. And while this story by John ranks fairly highly in terms of shepherd talk, probably the most famous usage comes from the Hebrew scriptures in the 23rd Psalm. And here's how the message, a very modern translation, puts it. God, my shepherd, I don't need a thing. You have bedded me down in lush meadows. You find me quiet pools to drink from. True to your word, you let me catch my breath and send me in the right direction. But for now, we'll stay with John's story of sheep and shepherds and eternal life. There's probably enough there to be getting on with. And in his story, John invites his listeners to see the presence of God in Jesus, using the metaphors of sheep and shepherds. Or to be more precise, the good shepherd, rather than a bad or indifferent shepherd. But John was neither a town person nor a 21st century person. And we too are a different people in a different culture from a different time. And the image of sheep can be somewhat meaningless to us because we don't live close by to the fields and to flocks of sheep. We usually only think of sheep when we're buying uh, lamb chops from the butchers or in the supermarkets. Or when we're remembering Dolly, the cloned sheep and her offspring some many years back. So the invitation before us now is to ask the question, where can this story find meaning in our lives? Maybe a clue comes in that part of John's story where he has Jesus saying, my shepherd recognize my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Now some translations say eternal life, but other translations will, will translate it as real life. I prefer that translation to the traditional words because it seems to remain true to the vision and the genuine stories about Jesus. How he affirms life rather than denies life. 
and it reflects less of the influence of Christian communities many years later, when life was of little significance in itself, or it's only, or it was only a kind of prelude to the life after we die. On the one hand, eternal life is often given the meaning of living on forever after death in some state of bliss in the presence of God or in heaven or wherever. On the other hand, real life paints a picture of the fullest possible life, a life of limitless new possibilities, the kind of life that humanity has dreamed about, not afterwards, but now. It's more about quality than it is of quantity. And in the same way, the word perish does not uh, mean to die, though it can have those connotations. It can also mean not at your peak or not at your best. That apple in the fruit bowl that we always told ourselves we'd eat, when it perishes, it doesn't stop being an apple. It just stops being the shiny, crisp, delicious apple that we'd like to eat. A perished apple is still an apple, just not one at the top of its game. Another reason I like the translation of real life has to do with traditional Christianity. Traditional Christianity's concentration on eternal life has encouraged, as Richard Holloway has said, a preoccupation with death and salvation, which has worked against the sense of connection to the web of life and taught people to be homeless in the world. And in many ways, I think this attitude, or rather the reaction against it, caused the heads of Christian aid to change their strapline to we believe in life before death. They didn't want people outside the church to wrongly assume that all people of faith were only concerned about what happened to them after they died. But of course, that attitude still has currency today. I know of some people who will never change their behavior with regards to their carbon footprint because in their eyes, it doesn't matter. What matters is post-mortem, not pre-mortem. And the same applies to pandemics or wars or food inequality or access to education or whatever. These are all seen as practical issues, not spiritual ones in their interpretation of what constitutes a spiritual matter. So it is ultimately unimportant. So this morning I want to thank those modern biblical scholars for reminding us both of the presence of God in this life and the connectedness of all life. That real life is about being connected to all of life, to being connected to a full life, an unlimited life, a life that is boundless in every way. Yet always admitting that life today seems often to be set within a culture of death, being in it, being it in the killing fields of political, ethnic and religious wars, through plagues and pandemics, and even as it takes up residence in schoolyards, the promise of present and future eternal life seems fragile, as John Donoghue, the American theologian, has said. Perhaps this is also the time for a quick sidestep 
to take a look at the companion reading that comes uh, in today's lectionary readings from John the Divine. John, who wrote on, apparently on the island of Patmos, the, the Re- uh, book of Revelation. John, who had this spectacular vision of heaven. And in spite of those Jehovah Witness type picture book publications of a glorified earth up there, John paints a picture of a place where there is no more suffering, no more death, where every tear is wiped away. And he paints a metaphor of hope and of real life, a hope that will make us more human. The Reverend Francis McNabb, who's a progressive minister in Australia, has suggested six characteristics or signposts of hope, which he imagines Jesus of Nazareth pointing to when he spoke of God and real life or eternal life. So I thought I would share them with you in point form only this morning, in the hope that they may resonate with our own experience and our own longings in life. Firstly, he says that Jesus pointed to his God as life-giving, life-enhancing, awe-inspiring, and a surprising presence. Not as some sort of killjoy type of divine being. Not as some sort of rule enforcer who delights when people trip up. Secondly, he says Jesus pointed to his God of affirming generosity, a God of invitation and inclusivity. Not somebody who eschews difference, but somebody who embraces difference because all things are ultimately grounded in him. He said Jesus pointed to his God who would bring some healing to the human condition. For while we might describe humanity as being capable of brokenness, it is not inherently broken. It is not inherently bad or rotten. Jesus pointed to his God who opened people's eyes, opened rooftops, opened doors. And those who were thus open became part of a new experience, a new life, a new being, a new creation. Jesus did not create a church, nor did he speak of creating church. He gathered people together, and in the gathering there was a listening wisdom, a nourishment of the human spirit, an expansion of the spirit. It wasn't about making people feel bad about themselves. It was about making people see the possibilities that were all around them. And then finally, he said, Jesus pointed to his God that passed through all boundaries, necessary as they may be for some, but held each person's place and dignity as important. And that's a tough one for us to follow. Boundaries and labels and things like that make things on the surface all the easier to understand. But in reality, they create more problems than they solve. And then McNabb offered a prayer, and I think his prayer might be a good place 
for us to rest in for a while during this Easter season. He said, may the great mystery that we call God keep alive in each one of us the search for a faith that is real, a faith that helps us to live happier lives, a faith that gives us a fuller meaning to life and the events of life. Bring us to know the goodness that flows from the heart of the universe, and may we be expanded in heart and soul by that very goodness. And may that be our prayer as well today. Amen. As we leave this place, let us go into the world with love in our hearts, love for God and love for our neighbour, love for ourselves. And may that love bring goodness and kindness to everyone we meet. Bless us now as we go, this day and forevermore. Amen.